I'm Glenn Crooks, and this is On Frame. TV commentator John Champion, he's our guest today. We'll have that interview in a moment. Last Saturday, New York City FC tied Minnesota United at the inauguration of Minnesota's new home, Allianz Field. 3-3 was the final. There have been three own goals in the five-year history of NYCFC. Frederick Brillant, Sebastian Ibiaga, and now Sean Johnson, the city keeper who has been steady and spectacular in his time with the Pigeons, accidentally turned a back pass into his own goal last week, giving the Loons a 3-2 lead. Johnson's response and the team response was favorable. Ismail Tajiri Shradi completed his brace for the equalizer, salvaging a point on the road. Johnson spoke after the match. Going back to the play, I think you know there's there's no point in, in making excuses. Um, you know, mistakes happen. Um, you know, it's about responding to it. Um, there's a lot of game left to play, um, and you know the boys in front of me responded in a big way. I think all game, everybody fought until until the death. Um, you know, we had, we had guys coming off injured, giving everything. So, um, really happy that everybody had my back today. Um, and. Uh, yeah, it was an important point for us, but uh, obviously disappointed uh, to let the guys down in that moment. Um, but um, but these things happen, and and they know. Um, you know, I apologize to them, put my hand up, and uh, we move forward. And uh, everybody assured me that they had my back on the day, and we were able to come back out with uh, with a point. Everybody that came on the pitch, um, I think the effort was there. I think we we played a confident game um, in moments where we weren't scared to make mistakes. Um, and so I think I think having that you know that confidence o over the you know over the course of 90 minutes is what's going to enable us to get over the hump. And uh, we were you know, ever close today, ever so close to, to coming away with three points, and we push and we push and we push. Um, but you know, I think that confidence is, is there with everybody, and I don't think um, this game is going to do anything to set us back. I think, if anything, it's going to drive us forward. New York City FC still in search of their first victory in 2019. They'll visit D.C. United on Sunday at Audi Field. 4.03 p.m. Eastern is the kickoff. There will be an iconic voice on the call for ESPN for that game, and he was on the city match at the opening of Allianz Field. So let's introduce him. A look at his career plus his specific thoughts on NYCFC, Wayne Rooney, and more. Uh, in his 30-plus years of commentating, he has called matches at uh, some of these competitions, the FA Cup Final, uh, League Cup Final, uh, three FIFA World Cups, UEFA Champions League, Europa League, uh, the Euros, uh, and most familiar maybe as a frequent voice on the English Premier League here in the States. If you don't know his name, you'll certainly know the voice, John Champion. John, welcome to On Frame. Great to talk to you, man. Great to be with you, Glenn. Thank you so much. I, I want to I ask about your voice first, and this is... Uh, you know, you're, you're out uh, ordering a cup of coffee or you're, you're in the grocery store and uh, your voice is so distinct. Uh, do you have any stories about people recognizing your voice and their reaction? Uh, yeah, I mean, it does happen from time to time. It depends how sort of soccer mad the country is that you're in or the, the city is that you're in at that particular time. But um, I, I think whenever people ask me about being recognized, uh, or, or people hearing my voice and, and what happens. My mind goes back to a night during the World Cup of, of 2010. I mean, I've been lucky enough to call eight of these World Cups, and they all have very different flavors. But the World Cup of 2010 was, was great because it was in South Africa, but the travel schedule was also fairly arduous. And I pitched up at a hotel in Cape Town, having flown from Durban through the night. And I arrived at 3.30 in the morning, and it was halfway through the competition. I was quite tired. All I wanted was my bed. 
And the eyes of the receptionist, a, a young man, probably no more than 20 years of age, lit up when I walked through the door. And he said, ah, oh, Mr. Champion, Mr. Champion, Mr. Champion, we've been waiting for you. And I looked around and I could only see him. And then suddenly from the back office appeared eight of his friends, all of whom had been waiting for my arrival at the hotel. A, to say hello, but B, and more importantly, with an eye to the main chance, uh, uh, you may know that for, for many years I was the voice of Pro Evolution Soccer, the, the computer game. And um, they all came out and they, they got together and bought a box of 50 copies of Pro Evolution Soccer. And before <laughs> I was allowed my room key, I had to sign every single one of them. And no doubt they appeared on eBay the next day. <laughs> well, what do you... I, what do you credit the the popularity? And look, you know, you you're you're on the air a lot. You've done a, a so many matches in so many different venues, uh, but there is a distinct nature not only to the voice but but your style. What what do you think attracts the uh, the audience? Um I suppose my style compared to many is is fairly minimalistic. I mean, I was I was brought through by the BBC. That was the first company that I worked for. I was with them for 17 years and they have their own very distinct uh, training programs. Um, and they also, they're, they're better than most broadcasters at actually uh, taking a young broadcaster under their wing and developing them. They take the view that if they're going to invest time and money in that person, they might as well make them as good as they can. So I was very fortunate uh, in my early days to, to work for some very good producers when I was in radio. And then in terms of developing my television style, because to me, television and radio commentary are entirely different disciplines and demand very different skills. I was uh, taken on by Match of the Day, the iconic BBC uh, Premier League highlights show in the mid-1990s. And I was the young office junior behind a couple of iconic commentators who've been doing it for 30 years already, John Motson and Barry Davis, both of whom had very different styles and very different approaches and are very different personalities. And each of them, because I was no threat to them, took me under their wing, uh, didn't tell me what to do, but just gave me a bit of guidance as to what they thought was good that I was doing, what they thought I was bad at, what I needed to work on. And the thing I took from that, and particularly from Barry Davis, was that less is more. Um, and that if, if you talk a lot, the words are somehow devalued because it just becomes wallpaper for a listener or a viewer, and they, they mentally switch off. Whereas if you use a quarter of the number of words, hopefully they have four times the impact as long as they're well chosen. So the job essentially is just to caption the picture. Uh, I listen to a, a lot of TV commentary right around the world, and it's just non-stop talking. And to me, that's radio, not television. So I suppose if you're asking me about my style, it is just to lay out as much as possible and to only speak when necessary. And is that uh, in part to uh, give your analyst uh, some room to breathe as well? In, in, in part, but also to give the viewer some room to breathe, Glenn, as well. Because, you know, for the reasons I've, I've just outlined, I, I think you, you can reach a stage of mental fatigue as a, a TV sports viewer if the commentators, the announcers, are just talking wall to wall. So I think it gives everyone a bit of a breather. And I'm happier if whatever words I do use have a bit more impact because there are fewer of them. And yes, in the case of Taylor Twelman, for example, it gives him more chance to contribute too. And we know Taylor likes to talk, and he's a good analyst, <laughs> but he has his opinions and has to express them. But we're with John Champion uh, from ESPN. And, John, uh, let's. Uh, I just want to get back to uh, uh, the early years for you before we get into the present. Just, you know, how you developed your passion for the game and then your passion for broadcasting, how that developed. So that's kind of a two-part question, but where did your passion for the game start? Uh, it started because I grew up in a city called York, not New York, but York, 
which is a, an old Roman city. It's about 200 miles north of London. Uh, it has a, what you would describe as a minor league soccer team. So they were in the fourth division when I started watching them. They're now in the sixth, unfortunately, down in the, the realms of non-league football. They've had a, a rough few years. Um, and I grew up living in uh, a, a local private school where my father was the deputy headmaster. And it was about a half a mile from Bootham Crescent, which is the home stadium of York City. And as a child growing up, both my parents were teachers and they were very keen that I should learn the good things in life. So I got sent off for endless music lessons and, and things like that, which is great on the face of it. But I think all of us as kids can relate to the fact that if you're pushed to do something, you tend to rebel against it. Whereas if you find something that you enjoy yourself, you'll embrace it. So I had the agony on a, a match day, a Saturday, of being able to hear the crowd roaring <laughs> half a mile away at the football ground whilst I was being sent to three and a half hour orchestra practices to play my violin. And eventually, at the age of 11 or 12, I started to rebel against that. And one day, my father invited one of his colleagues, who also lived in the school, round for lunch. And I knew he was a big soccer fan and was going to the match that afternoon. So I just harangued him. I made his life a misery for an hour and a half. Uh, more than hinting, just telling him that I wanted to go to the football. And eventually they relented and they let me go. And I went to watch a match between York City and Newport County in the fourth division of the English Football League. Uh, the crowd was 1,978. York won 2-0. And I just remember walking in through the gates of the ground and smelling the liniments, the stuff that they, the players rubbed on their, their limbs to, to loosen them up before the game and, and tasting the bovril, which is a, a beef-based drink that is traditionally served at half-time at English football grounds, and, and I was hooked. And it was the, this live drama that was unfolding in front of me. And I was fascinated by the reaction of the crowd to what was happening on the pitch. And from that point on, that was, that was the moment, really, when I, I fell in love with, with, with football. Um, in terms of the broadcasting side of things, I fell into it. So I, I was hopeless at school, got to the age of 19, left school with no great qualifications, didn't know what I wanted to do. Decided I wanted to go travelling, so I got myself a job working at the British Lending Library, which is a, a big place up in Yorkshire in the north of England, uh, which services universities around the world um, where academics want periodicals, magazines, articles sent to them. And I would help to, to service that just really as a means to an end to buy myself some thinking time and to get some money to travel around the world. And I, I went and bought myself a round-the-world ticket. My first major flight was to San Francisco in 1987, 11 hours on a Pan Am plane. Um, which was great. But at the same time, I really set out as my long-term career. And then one day, the, the sport I could play better than any other was cricket. And I played in a cricket match um, of a decent level in my home city and did quite well and then went in the bar afterwards to celebrate. And then uh, an hour or so later, I was called to the telephone in the clubhouse and it was the local radio station wanting to interview me about my contribution to the game that day. Well, by this stage, I'd had four or five beers, so I didn't give it a second thought answered these questions on the phone and then went back, had several more beers and had a really good night. And then two weeks after that, there was a phone call at home from the sports editor of this new BBC local radio station in my home city saying that they were looking for some people to do a little bit of freelance reporting on football and rugby uh, that coming winter. And they'd really liked the sound of my voice. And they thought that I sounded very relaxed and fluent on the air. Well, you bet I did after five beers. So, <laughs> well, you have uh, to give your father a little credit and your education, you know, yes, where you yeah, were for I I those music lessons, you know, may have helped you with the, <laughs> how you articulated things as well. 
Yeah, so, I mean, that's what got me my... You're absolutely right. Yes, I should give my, my mother and father a vote of thanks for that. <laughs> but in terms of the broadcasting, so I did that. It went really well. Six weeks later, they rang up again and said, look, we think you've got a chance of making a career out of this, but you've got to be a graduate, so go off to university. So I managed to find a, a university course, uh, went and did that for three years, did work for the BBC at weekends, which helped supplement my student grant in terms of the income and gave me valuable experience. And then six weeks before my final exams, there was a phone call from a very plummy voiced lady in the HR department at the BBC at Broadcasting House in London. And she rang up and she said, Mr. Champion, I'm calling about the job. And I said, the job? I'm, I'm sorry, you're going to have to enlighten me. Has nobody spoken to you? I said, well, no, I'm afraid they haven't. Ah, well, we've put you down for a job as a sports reporter on the radio in Leeds. The interview is three o'clock in London on Friday. These are the questions we're going to ask, and these are the answers you will produce. <laughs> Don't forget to wear a tie. <laughs> so I turned up, very nervous, parroted the answers I'd been given. Hey, presto, I got the job, and I was off and running. So I did a couple of years of local radio. Then I went to national radio uh, down in London. Uh, for five years, then I was offered a job by television, working on Match of the Day, and uh, then I went to ITV, the main commercial broadcaster, uh, and my first uh, link with ESPN actually was when they bought the rights to the English Premier League for the UK domestic audience in 2009, so that was the start of my relationship with ESPN. Well, that's, uh, that's quite a story. Hey, Bootham Crescent, I, I, I read up a little well, this is probably Wikipedia, I think, where mm -hmm. they, they said the capacity uh, is 8,256, but it said, parenthetically, 3,409 standing. So, <laughs> so there were a lot of standing patrons? Is that the way it worked? It was virtually all standing, because don't forget, this was before the disasters of Heysel and Hillsborough, which led to uh, English football stadium becoming all-seater in the, the mid-1990s. So this was a different age. I mean, I went to my first football match at Booth and Crescent in 1977. Uh, and in fact, I went to my last one there. This is just to bring the story of, of that football ground full circle. I mean, this is a ground where I, I also cut my broadcasting teeth. I've been in there when there have been 17 or 18,000 in. The ground record is 28,000 set many years ago uh, when the, uh, the health and safety uh, restrictions were not as great as they are now. And, and I've seen York, my team, beat Arsenal in the FA Cup. I've seen them beat Manchester United in the League Cup. I've seen them beat Manchester City in a league game. Just think of that. Um, and I've seen them beat the likes of Everton as well and, and Tottenham. So uh, it's been quite a ride with them. But in terms of that ground, three weeks ago when I was back in the UK, they're due to move to a new stadium later in the year. So I seized the chance to go for the very final time with my 16-year-old son, who also supports York City. So we went to watch a game against Boston United. And there were actually, even though they're in the sixth division now, twice as many people at that game as attended the first match that I watched all those years ago. <laughs> uh, we're with uh, the lead MLS play-by-play -play guy for ESPN, John Champion. Uh, how about uh, Allianz Field? From Bootham Crescent to Allianz Field, where you, uh, your most recent <laughs> broadcast Minnesota United opening up uh, their their new facility against New York City FC. So, what were your what were your impressions of this uh, new venue? Well, compared to Booth and Crescent, it's like being on a different planet. That's the first thing <laughs> to say. Um, and I thought it was terrific. Uh, I just I love the attention to detail. Um, you look at the soccer specific stadiums that are, are popping up around Major League Soccer. I've not visited all of them yet, but the majority I've been to, and and I think certainly Minnesota's new ground tops the lot. I think it, it sets a template. It's a good size, just under 20,000 with the capacity to add seats. They've not been overly ambitious, but I think the way that they've done it, to me, it just felt like a proper football stadium. 
And that's the biggest accolade I can give it. Because I've been to one or two where they've done their best, but they've not quite cracked it in that regard. But this one, I think, is terrific, and I can't wait to go back. What's the, uh, what, what do you mean by proper? The intimacy? The, uh, what, what, yeah. what makes it proper for you? I, I, certainly the intimacy. I mean, the fact it's 17 feet from the, the front row of seats to the, the near touchline, and the furthest seat at the back of the highest stand is only 40 yards away from the pitch. I think that adds so much to the cauldron, uh, which you require for a, a, proper, a proper sporting arena. And I also I love the Brew Hall and the 96 taps in there. I think it's great that, that people here can watch soccer and have a drink during the game. You can't do that in many European countries. So I think that's a big plus. And I also just felt that the culture there, I mean, they've, they've waited a long time for this, haven't they? All the way back to the Minnesota kicks and playing in front of nearly 50,000 people uh, back in the 1970s. Uh, but for, for, the, for, for soccer, the sport to have a proper home in the Twin Cities has taken over 40 years and now they've got it. And I just felt that the culture was really genuine and real as well. John, uh, so the opponent was New York City FC on that day, and uh, curious about your thoughts uh, of, about the Pigeons. So you had the Pigeons versus the Loons. I don't know if you use that in your broadcast. <laughs> I threw it out there a couple of times. But the, uh, the, they're winless uh, through their uh, entire 2019 schedule, and although there were at times uh, you know, some, some very good moments in this match, what's your, what's your take on City and and Brian Marwood from a City Football Group was around this weekend, which was interesting. Uh, maybe yeah. it was, maybe it was the new stadium opening. Maybe he was just trying to observe to see what's going on. I don't know if you had a chance to chat with Brian. I did. He used to be one of my co-commentators back in back in the UK, so I know Brian very well, and I spent a fair amount of time with him over the weekend. And he's uh, he's hanging around for a couple more games. I gather. I think he's at DC, and then he's going to the Chicago matches. As well, he's a he's a very good man, and as you know, he basically, although he doesn't have a particularly high public profile in his role with the City Football Group, he is in charge of of all the teams that have emanated out from Manchester City. So uh, I think it is significant that he's around, taking a look at, at what's going on in terms of the game. I was I was mystified by the starting lineup, um, the three at the back, and particularly with Tony Rocher in there, having played so little this season. And I, I thought it was no great surprise that he was replaced at at half-time. No particular reflection on him, but more, I thought, on the system. But I just thought, despite the aberration by Sean Johnson, that once you got into the second half, with those changes and the change of shape, so you had Tajuri Shradi on the right-hand side, Morales buzzing around him behind, Matriza off the left side, and, and Castellanos, who I thought was excellent and looked like a man who actually can lead the line, I thought you found a way forward, potentially. Uh, and I'd be surprised if the starting eleven in DC United isn't very close to what the second half lineup was for NYCFC. So I took some seeds of hope out of the performance. And uh, I, I wanted to address one thing. Now, I was on the radio commentary, so I certainly didn't hear this, and it's being taken out of context. After uh, an Ismail Tajiri Shradi goal, you made a comment that caused a bit of a stir among NYCFC supporters. I don't know if you're aware of this. The, uh, you called NYCFC a feeder club and junior team. And again, that's out of context, but I wanted to give you a chance to elaborate on that a little bit. Okay. I mean, I, I think, you know, all of us have missteps. Your goalkeeper had a big one. And, and I could have chosen my words more carefully. I think Satellite Club was probably um, more reflective of my feelings about the, the situation. Um, so if anyone was offended by that, that was certainly not my intention. And even after 35 years of doing this, sometimes you open your mouth and the wrong thing comes out. So those are not my sentiments at all about, about New York City. I think sometimes you just clutch for a word and the wrong one comes out and it happens even to the most experienced of us. So if anyone took offense at that, my apologies. 
But, you know, I have well, you know, the, the supporters are uh, as they are around the country, around the world. You know, they're very passionate about their team. And so uh, and it's a live yeah. broadcast. You can't you can't ever take back anything that you've said, as it turns out. No, you can't. But but also, you know, let's accept there is a lot of should we call it cross pollination between the seven clubs that Manchester City themselves included own. And it's great because New York City are benefiting from the coaching knowledge from the general setup of the City Football Group and occasionally from players that are sent their way. So let's not pretend that that relationship in some form doesn't exist. And I mean, if we look at New York Red Bulls this week, um, look at the fact that they're part of a, a not dissimilar organisation and their former coach has now got a job as a head coach at one of the other clubs in that group. And I'm sure as the relationship develops between the seven constituent parts of the City Football Group, we're going to see more and more of that. I mean, Patrick Vieira coming to New York City was fantastic. And I certainly don't rule out the thought of him coming back within to the City Football Group family further down the road, even though he's temporarily out of it. So I think, you know, you have to look at the relationships between Manchester City and New York City and the other clubs in a positive light rather than a negative one. And I certainly would never refer to it in any negative way, um, knowingly or deliberately. And, and one of the uh, articles I read uh, that quoted Brian Marwood, uh, it was about a year ago, is how the City Football Group tries to uh, pull from within. And Patrick Vieira is an example. So is Dome Toron. He was sitting next to Pep Guardiola with Manchester City. And now he's the New York City head coach. So you you would even think further down the line uh, when Toron's time is done that, that they're they're going to, it seems, constantly look to within the City Football Group to build the program. Do you get that feeling? Uh, yes, I do. Yeah. And, and I think there are a couple of uh, fairly prominent players um, who have been through Manchester City's first team who perhaps they've got an eye on potentially as managers in the future. So uh, not necessarily of New York City, maybe of one of the other clubs in, in the group. But, but there again, maybe New York City, because in terms of importance, I don't think there's any doubt that Manchester City look first to New York City uh, amongst their, their other clubs. So I think it's, it's really exciting. And in Brian, you've got a good man um, who is intent on promoting from within and he's also he keeps a very close eye on the young coaching talent in the UK there are two or three managers in the football league that I know he has a great deal of time for that he would love to get into the city football group in in some form at some point so you know maybe they'll be heading to New York at some point in the future John Champion our guest uh, Wayne Rooney's now in MLS John and how was that received in England when this signing occurred? He's with DC United, which you'll well, if you'll be doing a Wayne Rooney game very shortly because I know you're doing the DC United uh, uh, New York City FC game coming up on the weekend. But but what do you think? What do you think of his move, and how do you think he's done? I think he's done better than a lot of people expected. I think there was a concern that maybe um, he was over the wrong side of the hill because there are an awful lot of miles on his clock. He's 33. He's never been the most assiduous when it comes to looking after himself. Um, and perhaps for that reason, you thought that he didn't have too much left in the tank. But in fact, I think it's reinvigorated him. The first game I called over here at the start of the season was DC against Atlanta. And I went down to the locker rooms beforehand just to see him and have a chat. And he was more enthused and energized than I'd seen him in a good number of years. Loves his life over here, so do the family, and really enjoys the football. I think the standard of the football is higher than he expected. 
but he also sees it as a challenge. And I thought we got a glimpse in the midweek game against Montreal last week of just how much DC United miss him. He was suspended for that and they looked rather rudderless without him. So I do think he's been a big factor. And I think the general thought back in the UK is that he's performing at a level that we thought perhaps was going to elude him in the future. Yeah, Wayne Rooney, uh, he'll uh, be ready to go, I'm sure, on uh, Sunday when DC United uh, plays host to New York City FC. Uh, John Champion has been our guest. Uh, John, uh, a great pleasure to have met you. And for those of you that want to follow John on Twitter, he's a good follow. He's at John Champion JC. John, thank you so much for your time, and uh, we'll, we'll see you soon. Yes, look forward to it. Thanks, Glenn. John Champion, he'll be on the call for ESPN when New York City visits D.C. United. I'll have the radio commentary of Sunday's match with Tom Kolker and Matt Lawrence. Airtime, 345 Eastern for the pregame show with the guy whose seat may be getting a bit warm, City Head Coach Dome Teron. A couple of game notes uh, for that Sunday match before we wrap it up, courtesy of Opta. New York City trying to break a six-game winless streak to open the season. They're also in the midst of a franchise record eight-game road winless streak, conceding just under two and a half goals per game during that stretch. As for D.C. United, they've won four of five against New York City at home, but only one match has been played at Audi Field. That was late September last year, a convincing 3-1 victory for United over the Pigeons. And since last July, only Seattle has a better points-per-game average in MLS than D.C. United. The Sounders are at 2.5, D.C. United 1.9. Well, that'll do it for this week's On Frame. Please subscribe and then review on iTunes and TuneIn. This is Glenn Crooks.